when you get all kinds of requests for quotes, it's tempting to just quote it all. Um, I, I think that the best advice, though, is just to, to get really, really good at the stuff that you want to be really, really good at. And I think that's going to ultimately make you invaluable to your customers and to the market. Welcome to the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast, where we uncover the stories behind successful machine shops and their owners. By interviewing current and former shop owners, we dig deep to unveil their secrets of success and the struggles and challenges they've overcome on their paths to building thriving shops. We aim to elevate how important the machining industry is and inspire others by highlighting why owning a shop can be a great vehicle to creating jobs, stimulating the economy, and creating wealth. Here's our host, former machine shop owner himself, Paul Van Meter. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast. I am your host, Paul Van Meter, and today we have a real treat. I got to interview Allison Giddens, uh, the uh, co-owner of WinTech. Uh, they are a defense and aerospace uh, machine shop, about 40 people near Atlanta, Georgia. And Allison has a fantastic story of starting in this company uh, in the very early 20s after coming from a more corporate job where she was, um, I think her, her degree was in psychology and um, something else, but definitely not manufacturing. And uh, realizing that uh, there was a potential in the future of, you know, becoming an owner in this company one day. And so she tells this fantastic story of that's exactly how it happened over the course of many years and eventually taking over uh, and buying this business with another coworker from the original owner and founder of the business. So it's a, it's a really fun, great story. Uh, and uh, we then get into, for the almost whole second half of the show, we get into cybersecurity and CMMC. Uh, for some of you, this might be a topic you're not particularly interested in, uh, in hearing about, uh, but it is for anyone, uh, a super critical one, uh, for anyone that's in the aerospace or defense business or even serving the government in any way at all. Um, so Allison has been a real uh, proactive shop owner and leader in this space. She's deep into it. She's done a lot of thinking, a lot of learning, a lot of sharing of information uh, about CMMC and the NIST 800-171 standard and sort of the practical applications and challenges and a lot of thoughts around that. So we get pretty deep into that. I think she has some really fantastic practical advice for shops that are in this industry and sort of what they need to be paying attention to, what they should or should not be doing going forward. Uh, so it's definitely worth a listen if your shop at all serves anything government related. So uh, anyway, please enjoy this fantastic uh, and enlightening conversation with Allison Giddens. Good afternoon, Allison. Welcome to the show. Hey. Great to have you here. So, so folks, we have Allison Giddens from WinTech near Atlanta, Georgia, uh, on the show today. Uh, super excited to hear your background. I've been kind of watching uh, you on LinkedIn from afar, talking about CMMC and all sorts of things shop-related. I love some of the writings you've done. Um, so let's dig in and learn more about you and, and WinTech. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to chat about this stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've been with WinTech, I think, uh, 17 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my background, I, I come from an undergraduate degree of psychology and criminal justice. So oh, wow. uh, it really has nothing to do with manufacturing. But I, um, I had entered kind of a sales and marketing role with a large corporation right out of college. And a couple of years into it, um, I was liking what I was doing, but I could tell like big corporation just wasn't really my thing. It wasn't where I belonged. So okay. I called my dad and I said, I want to quit my job. And he said, you can't quit your job until you find a new one. <laughs> the typical dad thing, right? Yeah. So um, so I called my neighbor who I had pet sat for and I said, I want to come work for you. And he said, you don't even know what I do. I said, I don't care what you do. I just have to find a new job before I quit my other one. So uh, he let me come in for an interview and, and uh, he, it was Dennis Winslow. He Wintech. was the owner of Wintech. You got it. Wow. And I, I came in for an interview and sat down across from him. And I had known him and his family for years because I pet sat and, right. and did things like that. So sat down with him and, and he um, 
basically told me slid a number across the table and it was almost 30% less than what I was making at this big corporate cush job. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be an entry level, basically answering the phones at WinTech. Right. And I just remember my heart fell and I was like, oh. oh, I can't do this. And Dennis said to me, if you trust me, I think you could run this place one day. And it was just kind of a funny, I remember wow. thinking, okay, well, I like the autonomy idea. I like the independence. I like, this is something new and different. So mm-hmm. the rest is history. 17 years later, I'm here as a co-owner. So. Wow. <laughs> what a cool story. So when he, when he said that, you, do uh, you think to yourself, well, I can temporarily take a, a, a cut in pay because I can see the future of where this might go someday. Yes. Yes. And I, I think even as a, however old I was early 20 something, even, even then I thought my, my priority, I mean, yes, in some degrees, my husband will tell you I have expensive taste, but money, it was not going to be the ultimate driver. And right. so I, I was really attracted to the, to the notion that I could make a, a big splash in a small pond. Yeah. So <clears throat> what a cool story. I've never heard a story quite like that. So tell me, what did WinTech look like uh, when you joined it? Size, proximate, you know, type of business, clients, employees, things like that. So WinTech has been around for 35 years, um, maybe 36 at this point. Um, But they started off as a tool and die shop. Uh, We are about seven miles from Lockheed Martin Marietta. Mm. And so a lot of... The, the initial aerospace conversations happened with engineers who were on their way home on a Friday and, you know, would leave the office at two o'clock, swing by WinTech for a hole in a wrench and kind of, you know, go home early. Yeah. Um, and so one thing led to another and we, we became known as kind of a, a custom job shop that um, as Lockheed um, wound down a lot of its on-site machine shop capabilities, okay. it began to outsource to WinTech. So, by the time I came on board, we had just migrated from ISO 9001 to AS 9100. Okay. Um, like it was basically the month I started was our audit into AS 9100. So mm. I was thrown to the wolves on, okay. on that. We had about 30 or so employees Okay. Um, since grown. I think at our, our highest point, we were right at 47, 48 employees. Um, we're a few below that now, trying to work our way back up as I know yeah. a lot of other manufacturers are. So. Sure, sure. Post-COVID and all whatever else. Know, all that crazy. Yeah, various yeah. economy things. And yeah. uh, pretty much exclusively aerospace defense or defense-related aerospace work? About or? 80% aerospace defense. Okay. Um, we do a lot of, we've got a few production runs on some part numbers that we feel we are either a sole source or one of few sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of our, um, those are parts that we're really proud of. And then there are some onesie twosie prototype kind of things that we do here and there. Um, and then we do a lot of spare parts for different aerospace companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're a little bit all over the place. We're still, I think our, at our soul, we are still a job shop. Mm-hmm. We're still kind of that, you know, the nimble, somebody walks in and says, oh my gosh, I need this part right now. There's a plane that's down. Right. You know, and until we get this, we can't put it back up in the air. We kind sure. of, I think at our, our soul, that's, that's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And what types of uh, machining do you kind of specialize in in terms of types of equipment or processes? Got, um, we are machining primarily um, mills, lathes, grinders, th- things like that. But we also have a fabrication part of our shop. Okay. So we're kind of an all in one, uh, do a lot of assembly work as well. Um, we primarily Haas machines, um, some Mazak, um, a little bit of everything. So yep. it's just kind of, as I'm sure with a lot of job shops, it's, you know, yep. it's whatever machine we got in eight years ago, 12 years ago, whatever. Sure. And as long as it's running, it's going to stay on the shop floor. You bet. Keep making chips with it. Yep. Um, and so what was your journey like going from answering phones to being co-owner? So it's, it's kind of comical. I, I started answering the phones and I had this tiny little cubby hole of an office that is now our server room. Okay. <laughs> um, no window. So the joke was uh, Dennis had hung a picture of a window on, on the wall. So that was, that was kind of that. fun. Um, so I started um, essentially just answering the phones, doing some admin work, um, assisting the CFO at the time, um, doing things like learning how to read blueprints to help with purchasing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that migrated into helping with quotes and helping with orders. 
Um, and then one day Dennis called me in his office and handed me a VHS tape and okay. said, this is lean manufacturing. Your homework is to go home and learn it. And I'm like, okay. So I went home and found a VCR <laughs> and watched it and it was on lean manufacturing. And it was, I came back and he said, all right, you are now going to be leading a project on the shop floor to come up with a collet holder for the manual mill department to help with efficiency. And I remember thinking, this is way out of my wheelhouse. Like, I don't, I don't know where to start. And I remember the three machinists that were, were tasked under my wings. And, they, and I, I credit them to this day. They could have, I could have sank or swam. And they were so kind to me. I mean, oh. looking back on it, you had these seasoned machinists, these journeyman machinists that could have rolled their eyes at this 23-year-old who didn't know what she was doing who all of a sudden was their temporary boss over a project, right? you know, because, because of nepotism, because sure. oh, the owner just happens to know this net, this neighbor girl, you know, but they were so kind. They were so patient. Uh, we ended up coming up with this, this very cool Christmas tree looking collet holder mm -hmm. that's still used to this day. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I credit them to a lot wow. of me sticking around. <laughs> what a great story. Was that the culture at the time? Was it a pretty accepting, welcoming, friendly kind it was. Yeah. It was. There's, um, you know, I hear a lot in manufacturing. I hear about uh, people holding a lot of knowledge close to the chest, close to the vest, and and not necessarily wanting to train, you know, the next generation because they're worried about their jobs and things like. That's not been that's not been the feeling at WinTech. I think mm -hmm. um, our our machinists have all. I mean, they're they're always willing to teach somebody something. It's just a matter of. Um, you know, their their own way of of teaching it or their own way of of realizing whether or not the newbie wants to learn, I think, is more of the challenge than it is sure. sharing the info. Yeah. Was that something that Dennis fostered from the beginning, do you think? There's been a lot of there was always a lot of um, accountability in individual accountability um, okay. in, in what people do out on the shop floor. And I, yeah, I think it comes with comes with WinTech and it also comes with being a small business. You know, you can't hide when you're one of 40 people. Right. It's much harder to hide. So I, I think that it was, it's always been a, if you can't pull your own weight and then some, then you're not a good fit for WinTech. Mm -hmm. um, there aren't many people that are gonna, that are gonna, um, you know, do your job and their own at WinTech and it'd be okay for a long period of time. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, even a 40 person shop, uh, I know firsthand experience can be very protective and, you know, tribal knowledge and I'm not sharing. And so mm -hmm. something was happening with Dennis and the culture and the way he loved the company in the early years that led to that more openness. Um, yep. so that's, uh, yeah. have, have you, have you ever get involved with other companies, you know, tours or talks with other owners to the level where you have some insight as to any differences between your shop and others? In that regard, some I, I've noticed recently in the past um, two or three years, really, there's been a lot more willingness to share information between shops. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I remember just 10 years ago um, reaching out to a few of my competitors and wanting to talk to them about some workforce development, thinking that, you know, hey, if we've got, you know, if the pie is so big and we're all fighting over 10% of it, if the pie was bigger, that 10% mm -hmm. is bigger slice. Yeah. So let's all let's go after the pie. And I remember there was a little bit of hesitancy there, um, but it wasn't until recently I reached out that same group of competitors thinking, you know, only a couple had, had gotten back to me that first go round. But the next go round, I said, all right, we're going to reach out to them because we were having a lot of grief with some um, approved processing houses. Mm -hmm. And so reached out to my local competitors and said, you know, do you want to go to bat? Let's let's all go to the, our shared prime and and share some some grief and challenges that we're having and see if if we can't come up with a fix altogether. Mm -hmm. And it what I remember being floored because it was on that phone call that people were readily offering information that I don't know that they would have done 10 years ago. Mm. So that was it was refreshing. It was also kind yeah. of scary because it's like, wow, what kind of position are we all in where we <laughs> we all feel okay about this now? But um sure. I don't know, it's it's a good thing, I suppose. Do you think that's just a shift in the industry about understanding that collaboration is the answer, you know, and kind of all in this together. 
I think so. I think it's a mix of things. I think that is a big portion of it. I think it's also um, the changing of the old guard. Mm -hmm. So I, I love Dennis. Dennis Winslow is a second dad to me. Mm -hmm. um, but there is also that mentality, I think, of that generation where it was feast or famine. Okay. Um, and, you know, you, you had to play your cards close to the vest because you had people snipe and help. You had people, you know, looking, stealing work, things like that. But now I think that there's so much work out there, that there's so much to go around that I don't know that there there's so much of the protection that there once was. And I think that the the next generation recognizes that, hey, the, the rising tide lifts all boats here. Mm -hmm. So are these these people that have been, you know, so open, are they this the next generation from the people that 10 years ago were running the show? A couple of them are. A couple of the more outspoken people are. Uh -huh. um, there are a couple that are part of the old guard, but they've always been known not to not right. to be, um, you know, not not to be so secretive. Got it. Well, that's encouraging. That's that's yeah. that's cool. That's very cool. So um, so continue the story, if you will. You you did the lean project. You took on some more stuff. At what point did this ownership track really become solidified as the thing? And what happened? So there? in about I think probably, let's see, um, seven or eight years into um, me working at WinTech, I became office manager. And at that point, pretty much had understood everything there was to know about the office, running the office portion. Um, uh, Dennis kind of started teaching me a little bit more about the financial piece and what it takes to run um, run from that, from that aspect. Um, and then a few years after that, I thought, okay, if I'm going to have any sort of credibility with the shop floor um, and, and heck the rest of the employees, I need to not walk around with an undergraduate degree in psychology and criminal justice. <laughs> so um, I went to Georgia tech for a master's in manufacturing. And um, that was kind of, that was a fun journey because yeah. it was, um, I had to talk my way into that because they looked at my transcript and said, but you haven't had calculus. And I said, I'll figure it out thinking, okay. <laughs> so sure enough, it was, um, it was a fun journey and it was a several other manufacturers in this professional program. So, um, after I, I graduated with the manufacturing masters, I felt like I had a little bit more, um, legitimacy, I mm -hmm. guess, if you want to call it that, yep. um, where I at least could, um, use the right terminology along the way. Um, they still don't trust me to run parts, but that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I did that. And then um, in 2018, um, my now business partner, John, uh, John Hudson has been at WinTech for 30 something years okay. and he started off sweeping the floor. Wow. And when he came into WinTech as a, an 18 year old, he sat down across from Dennis and Dennis said, where do you see yourself in 20 years? And John pointed to Dennis's chair and said, sitting there. So wow. it's kind of comical how all this has come together. So so um, John had known everything there was to know on that shop floor. So while I was learning everything there was to know about the business side and the operations, it was John learning every single machine out there, how to quote work. Um, in 2018, he and I went into Dennis's office with a list of things, almost like the list of grievances, right? And we said, okay, these are things that he and I have noticed over the course of a few months that we want changed at WinTech. And Dennis kind of sat back in his chair and, and kind of did his little side smile. And he said, you guys think this is easy, don't you? And we <laughs> said, no, 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 we didn't say that. We didn't say that. And he said, okay, how about this? Um, starting on Monday, it was in November in 2018. He said, starting on Monday, um, you will run this company and I will take a step back and I'm going to check in with you once a week and I'll sign checks, see how things are going. And if after a year, you like it, then we'll talk about you buying it from me. And we said, okay, we, wow. we could deal with that. So sure enough, that Monday, John and I picked up and ran with it. And next thing you knew, it was November of 2019 is the end It was December, 2019. And of course, you know, you're three months away from the world shutting down. Yes. And, uh, so we're like December of 2019. We're like, heck yeah, let's do this. And, uh, we started talking and started doing business valuation, having those kind of conversations. You know, what does this look like? Um, next thing you know, the world shuts down in March. Uh, John and I are like, are we still doing this? Are we are we going to you know run with it? He's like, it's now or never, right? I mean, this is an opportunity. And then October 1st, 2020, 
John and I signed the final paperwork to, to co-own the business. Wow. That's so. such a cool story. It's amazing that Dennis would do that. Like on Monday morning, we're going to start you running the, running the place. Yep. I, I think deep down, he probably knew it was kind of already happening. Right. And this was kind of his way to test the waters. And he was, you know, there, it was like training wheels in a way. So we were there that if something did happen, he was acutely aware of, of things, you know, red flags and, and such where if things weren't going well enough, then he could at least say, okay, then I'm going to look for an external buyer or sure. whatever. Right. So what was that like for the team? Did that, did you guys, did you sit the whole team down and say like, all right, instead of coming to me for answers, you go to these two for answers. Pretty much, pretty much. We had a, a shop wide meeting that next Monday and he stood up and said, you know, here, here's what's going on. And I don't think anybody was floored mm -hmm. because it was, there was already so much that was funneling to John and I, right. um, that it was really just Dennis was the ultimate authority, but for the sake of, of this, then it just turned into, okay, there is no more, there's no more Dennis in that equation. There's the right. final sign off is, is John and I. So, you know, every, every once in a while, it's he, we're a great match. We're a great pair. I'm uh -huh. super lucky because every once in a while, you know, he'll pop his head into my office and say, we are either really stupid or or just crazy because <laughs> we bought a business during a pandemic. Sure. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and even despite the pandemic, someone either has to be crazy or stupid to buy a machine shop. Oh, my gosh. I think. You got that right. hundred percent. Hardest 100%. business in the world, bar none. What full the stop. Heck? What the heck? <laughs> yeah, I always say, you know, in a in a shop like this, you get like a thousand chances to get a job wrong and one chance to get it right. Like the stars truly have to align to like make That's the perfect. To, to make the margin you quoted on it. Like, you know, yes. the material has to be good and the material the cutting tools and the machine and you can't scrap a bunch and the schedule and it's like Yep. A million tiny details. Bingo. Yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not like uh, it's easy to have all those stars align. It requires no. so much expertise and so much nuance of cutting tools and tool paths and work holding yes. and flow downs and tolerances and all the things, right? Yep. And then, oh, by the way, you have it just about done and you find out, oh, wait, there's a new revision nobody told you about. <laughs> For <laughs> it's <sure>. Personal favorite. <laughs> Uh, wow. What a story. Um, do you mind sharing how you even valued the company? Was it a multiple of EBITDA or anything? You know? Yeah. So it, it's kind of funny how it worked. Um, initially we, Dennis had a, um, a business colleague that he knew valued businesses, uh, helped to evaluate business. And so he came in, talked to Dennis, um, did some calculations, gave Dennis the numbers, Dennis shared them with us and John and I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and said, there's no way on God's green earth that the business is worth that. It was way too high. And okay. so we, we did some kind of questioning and we learned that um, there were projections built into that valuation. So we mm. kind of had to backtrack and explain that a lot of those projections were not, were not slam dunks. Right. They were not guaranteed. Um, so we pulled back and then, um, the, the gentleman went back and he did some recalculations and then came back and then Dennis laughed. Dennis said, there's no way on God's green earth <laughs> that it's worth that, that low. <laughs> oh so gosh. at that point we kind of, it's a unique relationship that we had and we yeah. still have because I mean, Dennis, he walked down the aisle at my wedding right before my grandparents did. Oh, so, I mean, wow. there's such a closeness there that it, John nor I were looking to, to, pull one over on him. Sure. You know, this is his baby. This is an yeah. emotional thing. So at that point we kind of, we took those two numbers and we averaged them. That's essentially where we ended up. Wow. Um, we recognize that, you know, perhaps John and I overpaid a little, mm -hmm. um, but the opportunity that we had with owner financing right. and, and kind of having, you know, this drop into our lap, it was one of those things that it's like, you know, if we don't take them up on this, I think we'd forever, for forever regret it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there was, it, it was just so much of a plug and play. We were already doing the, the work, you know, we were already doing it. Now let's, let's provide Dennis the opportunity to retire mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, earn what he has rightfully earned. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's fun. Every once in a while, we'll still see him. He'll stop by to say hello. Okay. We joke that he has to sign the visitor log now, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so. And how long is that uh, that buyout for the owner financing? Is that still going on for many more years? It's or? still going on, yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for several more years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. But that's but it, okay. I mean, you know, we, and we it's, and joke it's manageable. all the time. With, it's manageable to send that check and still have enough what, to... What day? Depends on the day you ask <laughs> yeah. me. Depends Super. on the day. You know, I, I mean, when, when you have a really big order that is supposed to go out and then it doesn't, and then the next day you're supposed to go out and then it doesn't, you start looking at the cash flow and you're like, if it doesn't go out on this date, then I can't guarantee that the money comes in on this date. And then I can't guarantee that I can pay this bill. And that, you know, I mean, it's all those oh, yeah. cash flow Absolutely. challenges. So it's stuff that keeps me up at night but it's it's also forcing john and i i think to get creative mm -hmm. so we're having to think differently when we're quoting jobs and if there's a very large job that you know john's kind of struggling whether or not he even wants he will he'll add a lot of program management costs to it and then we'll also negotiate with the customer and say look one of the one of the hang-ups on this is that there's a ton of material that has to be purchased if you right. will do a progress payment to help pay that you know right when we buy it sure sure and this is doable and yeah. that's helped to alleviate some of the cash flow yeah, absolutely challenges so i'm hoping that we can keep doing that because word on the street at least from our customers is that we're not the only ones asking for that kind of thing oh i'm sure so that's a good sign yeah well credit's gotten way more expensive just i'm sure loans or lines of credit are way more expensive than yes. they were a few years ago and yeah and do you um in the industry that you're in with the clients that you serve is uh, have they been pushing out just crazy payment terms? I know some of the commercial aerospace, you know, they're like net 120. That's like, that's where they're leading with. I have heard horror stories. Our customers, knock on wood, um, have not been pushing. I mean, they're generally either net 15 or net 30. That's amazing. Um, so that's, that's a definitely a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> definitely a plug. We have some that, insist in being kept on credit card terms. Oh, wow. um, so they do a lot of P card mm -hmm, transactions. Right. Sure. Um, which of course then you have to play with, you know, do you charge them the credit card fees, you know? Yeah, of course. But again, the time value of money, the, mm -hmm. the option to be able to just to bill for something the moment it leaves your dock. Yeah. There's value to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. Well, I'm glad that's not been a painful one for you because I just came from an aerospace conference last week and, I know for some shops, it's just killing them. It's absolutely. I have horrible. heard horror stories. We had someone, we had a commercial uh, aviation company visit us a couple weeks ago and talk about looking for a speed shop um, and looking for a quick turn, you know? So we had a conversation with them and that was one of the things I asked was what generally are the terms. Mm -hmm. And they did say, they said net 60. And mm -hmm. I went, you know, and of course it's all part of the game, right? So then I said, well, you know, we do net 15. And he mm -hmm. was like, well, what about net 30? And I was like, I'd be willing to talk about net 30. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> you know, it's all well, part of the game, the dance. Well, that was actually a question that I actually got up and asked one of the analysts that were speaking. I'm like, are they concerned about, you know, shops in the air, in the commercial aerospace sector saying, screw it, I'm out of here because I'm getting 15 or 30 over at this other industry. And there's limited, there's so much supply and we're so much demand and little supply that it's like they can, they can just choose. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to work with clients that have good terms and also pay on those terms. Cause yes. you know, the 120, it's yes. like, that's what's on paper. And it's like after receipt of, you know, after their past receiving inspection, you know, so that might take, a couple weeks. Yes. Now you're at 150. You uh -huh. know? It's like, that's half nope. a year. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. There was, there was something that happened to us kind of recently where we had a, it was a new customer, it was a new aerospace customer. We were given a purchase order and it had a total of 16 parts on one line item. And we were told they needed a first article. Well, of course that wasn't quoted. You wanted 16 pieces. <laughs> so they said, we just want the one piece first. So we said, okay, fine. And we, we did that. We sent the part, lost our shirts, sent the part. Sure. And then they said, um, okay, don't give us the other 15 until this is cleared. And we said, well, wait, time out. You, you, you wanted 16. We're set up. We've run these parts. Right. And they said, well, they have to clear that first article. To this day, those parts were sent last July, or I'm sorry, the one piece was sent in July. They still haven't paid on the first, on the first piece. Oh, so no. we're sitting on the other pieces ready to go. They're done. I've invested the, the, material, the labor, the processing, 
So I'm waiting for them to pay on that invoice, which would indicate approval of the first article. So then I can send these parts and bill for them. So, you know, part of it, yeah, part of it's a learning curve. Part of it is maybe we didn't ask the right questions on the front end. Mm-hmm. Part of it is it's just the nature of the giant, you know, beast that is right. some of these aerospace companies. Yeah. So, you know, live and learn. Tough. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah, right? That is that is nuts. And uh, that and then the, the opportunity always is they come back and they're like, oh, this one thing is out by a tenth. So it's not, you know, and, you and you're like, but our CMM says it's fine. Right. And you're back yeah. and forth for weeks or months, you know. I'm, hold, I'm holding my breath. I'm told <laughs> any day now it's going to be approved any day. Oh, man, that's that. This is go, goes right into the are we crazy to do this? Because these, no the, these are the no challenges, kidding. right? And you try to as a small business, you try to figure out what do I have the um, authority to push? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, to this particular customer, I don't want to be a jerk because they've put some more work in here that so yeah. far so good. But do I do I push back and say, by the way, interest is accruing. Right. You know, and, and, and see if they pay it, you know, and see. Right. But am I going to become a problem vendor? Am I going to become a supplier that they don't want to work with? Yeah. So there's there's a dance definitely that that I think has to be done. Yeah, I think you're you're naming the exact thing that all these shops deal with all the time. And I see it in forums. They're like, what do I do? I have this this bill out or these bills and these clients won't pay. Like how much of a pain in the ass do you decide to be? Uh, for fear of getting paid or not getting paid, but losing the client and developing a bad relationship. Any any guidance, any pearls of wisdom for uh, how to navigate that? I think um, there. So there are a couple pieces. I, I tend to um, <laughs> I tend to write emails when I'm uh, passionate about something. But what I need to do is, and what I've started doing a little bit better than usual, is saving the email and sending it the next day. So when when I notice that something is overdue or when I'm frustrated about a non-payment or a non-answer on something, I'll type the email, save it, come back the next day, reread it. And they always say that you need to be 10 times nicer in an email than you think you're being yes. because of the because of the intent that that is read of how it's yeah, read. Exactly. So, you know, I try to do that. I try to um, I, I try to, I guess, um ingratiate myself to the buyer or the person that is ultimately in charge of, of sending the approval Mm -hmm. for an invoice. And I think just recognizing that buyers and, and the people that are giving us orders, they're just as stressed out as we are. You know, even if they're not having to make payroll, they're stressed Mm -hmm. out for their own reasons. And I think if you can kind of humanize the other side and recognize, look, we are, we're all short staffed. We're all doing more than we signed up to do, Mm -hmm. you know? So you know, maybe maybe the non-payment of an invoice truly is an over oversight. Maybe it's the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, right. Okay, you know, so that's sure. likely. Yeah. Oh, I think that's uh, both insightful and some great tactical advice. I know I've done that. I've like saved a draft, and I come back, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I need to flower this thing up a little bit. Like, good morning, how are you doing? <laughs> Hope you had a great weekend. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah whatever just because yeah it can come across uh very differently than you know there's no intonation in emails right unless you add yeah. these sweet adjectives and then it comes right. across lots nicer. of exclamation so, points yeah yeah <laughs> all caps all caps yeah. <laughs> emojis right <laughs> oh so good um so how have has the company just grown over the years just organically just those clients have grown bigger and bigger or have you strategically gone out and done sales and targeted different companies to, to work with them? Essentially it's been a lot of word of mouth from engineers um, okay. as they move from company to company, they kind of take us with them. Yep. Um, I mean, Lockheed Martin Marietta, we started doing business with them in 1989 or 88. Okay. And now we do business with like 12 different divisions of Lockheed. Wow. So I think that there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of potential. In fact, uh, John Hudson, my business partner right now, is out at an industry event right now for F-35. And oh, nice. so there's a lot of conversations happening with them. And I think I just saw in the news that Spain is poised to buy several F-35s. So okay. I'm sure that the powers that be are holding their breath on that one. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there's 
Um, there's a lot of accidental growth in a good way, but we're seeing so much. We're seeing heavy quoting activity really ramp up and um, not that it ever got slow um, for us, but it, it's really um, it's it's gotten pretty pretty busy with our existing customers and it's also started expanding with some new customers that we've noticed are again either engineers from past clients or come word of mouth so um we do we do some social media marketing and little minor things like that but it's very rarely for the intent to go get orders and more just to keep the brand in general out there yeah is essentially what what that does yeah yeah um, yeah, I, I remember many times where engineers or even buyers as well would switch a company and then we'd get a call from them a few weeks or months later. They're like, Hey, we have this need and our current supply base isn't, doesn't have capacity or isn't great or whatever. So it's always nice when people call you out of the blue from somewhere new. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you feel like, I, I imagine it sounds like Lockheed is a pretty large percentage of your business. Um, and there's sometimes there's some risk from client concentration, but I'm guessing with 12 different divisions from all, probably all over the country or the world, there's some safety in that because even if this defense arm is slow or whatever, this other program is going great guns. Um, is that how you think about that? Yep. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. There's, it's funny because on paper, when you look at our list of customers, um, I was just looking at 2023, we did work for 71 different entities last wow. year. That's a lot. So there's a good, I think a good um, diversity of, of clients. Mm -hmm. um, it is funny. You can always tell you can overlap, um, you know, what's happening on the world stage with a lot of it. Sure. You know, the, the more somebody in North Korea runs their mouth, then the more, you know, the friendly countries get a little nervous and start placing orders with the U S government. So yeah, yeah th there's always, you can see correlations, but mm -hmm. ultimately I think with that, diversity of clientele. I think we're in a good, good position not to, not to rely on any one thing from happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of markets and serving different clients, I imagine your AS9100 has been a critical part of your, your success for, for many years now. Um, I know there, you know, as I hear people talk on LinkedIn or various forums or places, you know, there's questions of, should we go ahead and do this? You know, should we get a certification? Because we don't today and it's expensive and it's time consuming. Um, and my advice is um, it's pretty essential these days. If you're going to serve any kind of high value market, um, that's not just really sort of relatively low margin, low hourly rate work. It's just pretty essential to, to get these certifications. Do you have any different advice? No, I, I agree. I think it it's no really it's no longer a um, like nice to have. It really is. It's probably the single barrier to entry for anyone looking to get into aerospace that's not already in it. Right. Um, yeah. I remember when ISO was just kind of starting to be a oh you need to be ISO nine thousand one. Um, what did they call it? Not certified compliant. Right. right? <laughs> and it was kind of like, not necessarily certified, just compliant. And then it turned into, oh, you need to be certified. And then it turned into, by the way, you also need to be AS9100, not just right. 9001, but yeah. the next one. Right. So, yeah. All right. Let's, let's get into the topic that I know we're waiting to get into. Speaking of compliance versus certified <laughs> for years now, there's been the NIST standard. NIST 800171, which any shop like yours is supposed to have been compliant with since what, 2016? 2017. 2017. Yep, you got it. Um, and it wasn't happening and people didn't even know what it was, yet they were, it was on their POs. <laughs> um, and lots of sensitive data was getting stolen from all sorts of companies, big and small. Um, and hence CMMC is now looming large. Um, I know that you are a, a thought leader in this space around that. Can you share? Um, I guess what you've been, what you've been doing and some of your perspectives on, uh, on the requirements. Sure. Yeah. So if you are in aerospace at all, likely you've had the DFARS, um, I believe it's 252-204-7012 clause. And that 7012 clause is essentially the safeguarding of, um, confidential unclassified information of sensitive data mm -hmm. and buried in the DFARS clause 
is reference to NIST 800-171. And it's a standard um, that talks about protecting the confidentiality um, of, of CUI, which is confidential unclassified information. So yeah, there's all, it, it's funny because as a small business owner, you know, we, we get these purchase orders or these contracts, you know, some people, if they're primes, they're going to get a contract. If you're a sub contractor, you will likely get a purchase order. Um, it's mincing words, but I like to call out, it's not necessarily a contract. It's a purchase order that, you know, somebody in legal might tell you it's a contract. So the purchase order has all these flow downs and it might say you need to be AS9100. Okay, check that box. And then it might also say, and, you know, Acme Aerospace also has these other terms and conditions and you need to go to this website to go find them. Okay, well, let's say you got a fax and let's say that that purchase order came through fax. It's not something easily hyperlinked where you can click on it, right? So now yeah. you got to go to the computer, type that URL in and go to it and hope that URL is, is good because half the time it's a bad URL. Yeah. So you go to the URL and you see all these flow downs and one of them just happens to be this, maybe this DFAR 7012. And you then click on that one. And you've got all these different onion layers you're peeling back. And it's almost comical because you could get a purchase order that's 47 pages long because of all these flow downs. And it's for a $1,200 bracket. Right. And you're sitting here going, why on, on God's green earth, why, why am I doing this for a bracket? So the, 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 the idea, uh, kind of one of my theories is essentially this is just flowed down just as a a CYA for, for lack of better way of, of saying it, but it's when a buyer has said, okay, well, it's in my purchase order. So if I'm going to have WinTech do this bracket, surely they're going to have to follow all the things I got to follow, copy, paste. There you go. Yeah. And then from there, if that prime got that flowed from the U S government, the U S government, surely that buyer or that contracting officer says, here's this giant assembly to a fighter jet. And all these all these flow downs apply to my big old prime that has a lot of money and a lot of resources. So I'm putting all this stuff in there. They need to safeguard this data. And now here we are all the way at the bottom of the hill as WinTech. And we're having to attest that we are doing all these things. Now, the frustrating part is we should have all been speaking up, you know, seven years ago when all this stuff was first in. But arguably, we were all incentivized by quality and delivery and price. Those were kind of the things we were beat, beat our, in our heads, right? It was all about um, the, the quality of the product, all about delivering on time. It was all about making the budget. It was never ever about also securing the data. There was no incentive to that. So now if you look at purchase orders, you've also got other DFARS clauses. Well, what else aren't we doing, right? Mm-hmm. If you I think there's dash 7007 DFARS clause. Make sure you have a human trafficking policy. What what machine shop honestly has a human trafficking policy? Right. So I, I think that we we kind of lose we lose the forest through the trees when we get too hung up on the fact that these are things that these are all these minutiae that we all have to be doing. And ultimately, yes, it's safeguarding data is something we should be doing. Um, but it's also not, we shouldn't be doing it to the detriment of everything else in our shop. Sure. So I think there's a lot to CMMC, which is ultimately just the assessment process overlay to, to making sure you're doing NIST 800-171, you're compliant with it. I think there's a lot of good with it. I don't think it's the right answer to the world's problems, but I think it's mm-hmm. a, an answer that we're all going to have to deal with if we want to play in the space. Right. So yeah, I mean, as far as WinTech's concerned, we've been it's it's been a slow go. It's been uh, you know, several several years journey to kind of get to get to a place that I can sleep better at night. <laughs> Was um were you guys paying attention to uh that uh, 7012 and the NIST years before? So it's funny, right as soon as it came out was around the time that I was starting to learn purchase orders. And so I remember walking into Dennis's office and it was a really long purchase order. I remember exactly the part that it was for. And I showed him, I said, what's all this stuff mean? And he, he flipped through it and he was like, oh, this is stuff that's always on there. And I said, well, but this says, and it had a, it had a, oh gosh, like a December date on it or something. I felt like it was a date coming up. And I said, is this something we have to be certified for? And he's like, no, 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 no. Just let's just go in and get it set up. So the months that happened after that, 
I started digging deeper and realizing, oh, it has a lot to do with cybersecurity. Well, uh, my my husband was in IT, so of course I take that number back home and I'm like, what does all this mean? And he's like, you guys aren't doing this, you need to do this. So he came in on weekends and helped us get to where we needed to be. Um, that was kind of, you know, in, in hindsight, it's like, man, we had a lot of free labor. Um, right. But we got to a point, a much better point very, very quickly in the grand scheme of things. But it wasn't until I brought on an MSP about three or four years ago mm-hmm. that we really kind of buttoned up all the loose ends, all the all the kind of holes. But it was it, to, to hear government folks, and I've got a lot of friends in, in industry and in Department of Defense that they're working their tails off. And they're just mm-hmm. back to our conversation about buyers and stuff. You sure. know, everybody's the other side of the table. Often yeah. they're more like you than you want to admit. Um, but it's frustrating to hear some of them talk about how easy this is and how chastising small businesses, you know, they should have been doing this all along. Should have been. No, 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 no. We were supposed to be getting you quality parts to make sure that they were going to be put on planes to keep warfighters safe. Right. That's what we were supposed to be doing. Yeah. Nobody told, nobody explicitly said to us, by the sure. way, this is also just as important. Yeah. Cause if starting whatever back in 2017, if you'd said, no, I'm sorry, I can't quote on this because we can't meet the thing you said we have to meet or my, here's my price because I have to do all these things. They would have been like, well, no, I'm not going to pay you that much. Or, exactly. or or wait that long. <laughs> so exactly. would have given exactly. it to someone else that wasn't doing those things, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And the, I think the kind of crazy piece um, that complicates it is that when it's all said and done, they talk about CMMC compliance and how the you're going to have to be certified at time of award. This is eventually, right? There's a proposed, at, to, I mean, at the timing of, of this recording right now, the proposed rule is out and will theoretically become a final rule for it to be put in contracts either late this year or early 2025. Mm-hmm. And if and when that happens, the idea will be that you have to have a certification at time of award. Right. Well, if, the t- if, if we're concerned about data and data sharing, why are we concerned about it at time of award and not time of quote? Yeah, sure. Because if you have to get the data in order to quote, then so you're saying I don't have to be certified to accept the data for a quote, but I have to be certified to accept the data to make the job. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, it, to me, again, losing the forest through the trees, I think if if the whole purpose of this is to safeguard national data and information, I personally think we've gone about it completely wrong. Yeah, right. So uh, for those that, you know, that maybe aren't as in tune with it, there's this C3 PAO network that's going to be going out doing the actual certifications. There's not nearly enough of them today. There's more being trained and added. But um, what do you think is the likely, most likely outcome when the rule does become law? Are there, are there going to be lots of waivers and exceptions because or are they going to be firm about it? Like, yeah, what do you think is going to happen? And there's, you know, people are going to get in line for an audit. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll get to you in 2026. Right. It's like, but, but I can't run my business without purchase orders. So, right. yeah, what's, what's, what's going to happen? There's a conversation I had with someone recently that he brought up a good point. He said, you know, all this is fine and dandy until a general on the battlefield picks up the phone and says, are you telling me I can't have my widget? because of somebody doesn't have a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it will come down to the actual people using the products that we're manufacturing, the people that are going to say, I don't care what has to be done. I need, you know, such and such part. Personally, if, if, if I were made president tomorrow and I'm in charge, um, the, the first thing I would do is kind of draw a line in the sand. Like I, as, as fatal as, as fatalist as it sounds, can we all agree that the stuff out on our networks right now, if it is confidential, unclassified information, can we just make the assumption that it has been breached? Mm. It's a crappy way of, of looking at things, but let's just make that assumption. Now, moving forward, anything new developed, mm-hmm. anything that isn't already out in the wilderness, then that becomes what we're standing on. That becomes 
what gets put in contracts that because right. otherwise I just feel like there's all this murkiness and there's this, sure. I mean, you know, we, we get um, assembly prints a lot when we're just making a component and I hear people argue, well, we need to stop oversharing CUI, you know, primes need to start separating things out. And if WinTech is just going to make the bracket and not the full assembly, WinTech just needs to see the bracket. It's it, in those cases, then you might have to completely redevelop the print because anyone right. that's worked in a machine shop knows yeah. that bracket might be on page seven, <laughs> but the notes for the processing and the tolerances and the bill of materials is on page one. So, you know, yeah, we can talk a good game about how too much CUI is shared, but as a manufacturer, I don't want less CUI. I want to know context. I want to know form fit function. I want to know what is it that you want me to make? So yeah. I don't know. I, I, a lot of times um, with some of our government partners and some of the larger primes, I wish that small business were invited into the room a little bit more frequently because we can share some of these very unique situations and contextual challenges yeah. for them to be able to make better decisions. Yeah, because it would potentially change the entire conversation or the answer yeah. about how to roll something out. Right? Mm -hmm. It's completely unrealistic or totally realistic. <laughs> like, right, right. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of specific things that I don't know the answers to, but I've heard discussed. Um, let's talk about CUI marking. <laughs> a hot topic, <laughs> if I've ever heard one. Yep. I've heard that the like drawings and models and things are supposed to have like the person's name and phone number of like who, who generated the CUI. Like if it's an engineer in the drafting department or whatever, they're supposed to put their contact. Is that true? So I don't know about that. I do know that NARA um, ultimately oversees the CUI program national. Uh, um, you're going to ask me what that stands for. And I don't know it. Uh, don't know what it stands for. Okay. But they have, that's where all the CUI registry, that's where all the information about CUIs. Now, the problem is, is a lot of times, well, well the, my personal experience from the CUI markings feel as though the data that I have, the hard copy data, whether it's prints or model, well, electronic data too, model files, whatever, the prints, the 2D PDFs or the TIFF files or the scanned in plotter prints, yeah. That stuff was created before some of these CUI rules. Yeah. So to to think that someone in the government is going to go back and mark these things properly and then make sure that the updated versions get sent to anyone who has, you know, talk about controlled documents, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that we, um, there was someone in a prime that said to me a few years ago that CMMC is built on a house of cards and that house of cards is CUI. And I think he's right, because if all of this is reliant on CUI and data that we don't know what it is, we don't know how to market, we, we don't know who's responsible for marking it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you are, we are a design exempt shop. We don't do any in-house design. Right. So does that mean that any data we get needs to already be marked CUI? And does that mean that if we create a model file for a handful of the features on a mill, in my head, that's not CUI. I know you and I were talking and you've heard the other, you've heard the opposite. You've heard, well, it, it could be CUI. Sure. So I, I think that um, the way that we are running things, the way that we're looking at things is we're letting things like ITAR and export control, we're letting that kind of drive what we're doing. And in a lot of cases, we overscope. In a lot of mm -hmm. cases, we just automatically assume, okay, it's CUI. Right. And I hate doing that, but sure. in my environment, it's easier to do that than it is for me to nitpick and say, okay, that doesn't need to be protected. That does, that doesn't, right. that does. Well, aren't there some requirements or regulations that you can't mark something CUI that's not CUI? Well, yeah. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, like I said, we don't mark anything. We don't, sure. we treat things like they are mm -hmm. sensitive and that's okay. about it. Um, again, I, I don't envy medium-sized companies because right. if you think about it, the small companies we have, we're able to be nimble and we're able to kind of, you know, wrap our heads around, wrap our hands around some of these things, mm -hmm. the big, big, big companies, they have the resources and the dollars 
to, to make things happen. The medium companies, if you've got 490 people and a bunch of them are remote, how and you're and you design and yeah, you do software. Sure. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. They've got their work cut out for them. So challenging. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so if, uh, if, and when, um, I guess we kind of covered it, you, you know, a general at some point is going to say, I need my parts, you know, screw the requirements. My planes can't fly or my tanks can't drive. Um, but practically speaking until that happens or whatnot, do you think it's prudent for shops to, I mean, can you get in line for a, for an assessment yet? Well, that's the kicker is you can get in line for a JSVA, a joint a joint surveillance audit, a joint surveillance okay. voluntary assessment, okay. JSVA. You get in line for that. And it's basically where a C3PAO um, and a DIBCAC um, auditor come out and kind of tag team the audit, so to speak. But um, the downside is there's no guarantee that that's going to translate to a CMMC certificate. Mm. So personally with the dollars that are out there that I hear waved around that assessments cost, I'm not willing to drop tens of thousands of dollars on some, on a big maybe. Right. Um, not when it's not going to better my product, sure. you know? So I, I think that machine shops now, I think the best thing they can do for themselves is get compliant to 800 171. Cause no matter what yeah. happens, that's, you've already been promising that. So you yep. need to do that to rev two. And then, to be um, hyper aware of what's happening in the industry with NIST 800-171. Mm -hmm. So 800-171 just released a third revision. And the way that the DFARS clause reads right now, it implies the latest revision of 800-171. So when Rev 3 becomes official, which I believe might be as soon as April, um, when Rev 3 becomes official, if you have a DFARS 7012 clause, and it's just business as usual, you're now attesting that you're compliant with Rev3. And Rev3 is vastly, vastly more intense than Rev2. Oh, wow. It is. So, and there's also a lot of unknowns with the Rev3. So mm -hmm. there are um, something called ODPs, Organizational Defined Parameters. And those have been incorporated into the third revision. Essentially what it is, is it's allowing government agencies to define certain things for their own um, environments. So, for example, it may say um, the old the old NIST 800-171 Rev2. It might say um, um, access control define who has access to certain privileges, certain certain things in your system. Full stop. Rev3 may have ten different steps to that, and it may say, and you're going to review it x amount of months or the, uh, periodically, but then it's DOD is going to be the one or the agency is going to be the one to define that time period. Mm. So you have all these unknowns and eh, it's just, like I said, it's, it's a heck of a lot more involved than Rev2. So my best advice to a machine shop in this space would be if you right now are working on projects with DFAR 7012, watch NIST 800-171 and the day that Rev3 becomes active, any purchase orders or any quotes that you deal with, with 7012 called out, just be explicit and, and explain to your buyer or your customer, hey, I'm accepting this order, but please note, we are Rev2 compliant. I don't anticipate any pushback on that. Okay. Um, that's that's what we're, that's our strategy. That's what we're going to be doing. Yep. Um, and if yep. somebody, if our buyer or customer has a problem with that, you know, I mean, I, then there's really nothing I'll be able to do at that point. So I, I would like to think that in the industry, with machine shops, you know, we, we do have a little bit of leverage and that is the fact that if you are in the space and you're making parts, somebody needs you for something, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, they can go dual source something somewhere else, but there are only so many of, uh, so many companies you can do that with. So, yeah. Yeah. I have definitely heard of shops saying that even to get on RFQs, they're requiring to, you know, show what their Spurs score is like, or show progress uh, towards, you know, a higher score. Have you heard that? Have you seen that? Yes. And that breaks my heart because so a Spurs score, a supplier performance risk score, I, essentially S it's, SBRS, it's your score yeah. for NIST 800-171. And you can have a score as low as negative 203 mm -hmm. or as high as 110. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And the idea is to become perfect. Well, pro tip, don't go type in 110 if you've not actually assessed yourself, <laughs> because that's a big old red flag. Dibcac loves those 110s. They come knocking on your door. Um, right. But yeah, what I'm hearing is when people, when when customers, non-government customers, uh, you know, your primes or your other your other contractors are asking, hey, screenshot your SPRS score. I strongly advise you not to do that for a few reasons. One, if if you screenshot a score and it's 99 out of 110, you've just admitted to not being 100% compliant. And right. also you're not giving someone context. They don't know what missing points you have. For all they know, it's it's something pretty dangerous to, you know, you're, you're missing something pretty integral to to the system or, or maybe not, you know, maybe it's something minutia. Maybe it's just the minutia. So I would say that if somebody does ask for an SPRS score, um, ask a question back, you know, say mm -hmm. who, who needs the data? Are you willing to jump on a phone call where, um, you know, I can walk you through what we've done um, or I can share a screen, nothing stopping the other yeah. person from screenshotting, yeah. but still, you know, you're, you're kind of doing a little bit more due diligence and, and some of that, cause a lot of people are just checking the box. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. Yeah, it is uh, a little bit uh, insane because I it sure seems as though there will be plenty of companies that say this is just too much. I'm out. Like, I don't need the I don't need the expense of you know unless it's so core like you know to your business you couldn't not serve this industry. But if you have shops that are 10, 20 percent defense and the rest other commercial, I could easily make in the the decision to just get out of it entirely. Yeah, and the, oh, and yeah. the supply chain is already too small. You know, yep. there's not nearly enough suppliers. I, I hope that it doesn't, I hope that quality doesn't suffer for it because I can almost see, can almost see circumstances where a, you know, third tier prime or third tier uh, supplier says, I'm not playing this game anymore because you're 10, 20, 30% of my business. And then for a contractor, a subcontractor to call them and say, but you've always chem filmed my parts mm -hmm. and then say, well, you can send me, send me data, but redact redact the print. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you play around with the print, you take this off, you take this, and then God forbid you forget to mention something about masking of a hole, you right. know, or, or something. And then next thing you know, you've got all these parts and it misses QC and it goes to paint and it ends up on a plane. And then there's FOD, you know, then something right. gets flaked off. It, you know, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, I'm drawing, you know, reaching for straws or whatever the, the term is, but it's, it's kind of, um, you know, you hate to see something suffer all for the, all for, for the benefit of something else. Mm -hmm. So uh, you bring up a, a good point and another question I, I guess I have for sub vendors, like a plating house, the, if, if they're getting that CUI, the drawings or the models, they should also be certified or compliant, but that's so seemingly so impractical. Like, are are, are your shops like you going to just recreate your own basic drawing without, I mean, is that even a thing? Is that like, that's not CUI if you make your own version without the bare basics of just plot, you know, this plating spec and mask these holes? Is that really not CUI? Yeah. That's a really good question. I mean, right now, as it stands, we're sending our suppliers um, encrypted data or sending us secure file share. And mm -hmm. we have a lot of suppliers that give us that push back on us because of it. You know, we can't access that folder. And then come to you, you, you learn that because everybody's sharing an email address. It's yeah. like, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, that's that's security one on one. And I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I know that in the in the old days and I'm putting quotes on that in the old days when we had certain parts that had to be masked, we took the print a hard copy of the print and we highlighted certain areas and we redacted areas, but not for the sake of security, but for the sake of making sure they focused on what we needed them to do and what we yep. needed them to do only. Yep. And we got away from that because for the same reason I was just telling you is people were like, no, 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 no. Send me everything. I'm the processing house. I will determine what I need. I'm the professional. Sure. And they were right. So that's what we started doing. Hmm. Yeah. So many questions. Oh my gosh. Just a can of right. worms, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. And again, I don't, I don't know as well-intentioned as our government partners are. I don't know that enough of them have the awareness that these things are real problems and these things are real. You know, that I think there's this notion that 
oh, small business just needs to get their act together. They just need to use MFA and, you know, stop letting the bad guys do things by clicking on internet ads. It's like, that's not, (laughs) all all of these things can be true. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, So to kind of wrap up here, um, I think you've offered some really solid advice on on the CMMC and security side. what other advice would you give to shops of any type, whether they're serving the defense space or, or oil and gas or medical or commercial aerospace that, you know, can help ensure their success in this new market, you know, 2024? I think um, best advice I could give to any shop, whether it's aerospace, commercial, medical, whatever you're you're working on, is get really good at the stuff that you're pretty good at now mm-hmm. and just become become an expert in what you're trying to do. And I I know that a lot of people try to be, you know, everything to everyone. And it can be really tempting when there's so much meat out there, you know, when you get all kinds of requests for quotes, it's tempting to just quote it all. Um, I I think that the best advice though, is just to to get really, really good at the stuff that you want to be really, really good at. And I think that's going to ultimately make you invaluable to your customers and to the market. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that, that comes right back to this, that old saying, the riches are in the niches. Right. Um, and I've yeah. had a number of guests who have uh, very specific niches that they focus on and they absolutely thrive and they do so well. And I know, you know, back in my own shop days, yeah, there were absolutely times where we were a little light on work and we we're like, uh, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't fit us great, but we'll take it. And it just killed us. Right. Yeah. You know, you just gotta make chips, we learned, right? yeah, we learned over the years that now we just you got to focus on our core competency and get really good at certain things. And and it's a longer term approach because when you're when your machines are sitting idle, you're like, I just got to get something on those. But that uh, so it's it just it, it's yet yet another thing that makes it the hardest business in the world, because, yeah. uh, you know, without a strong sales pressure, I call it, you know, RFQs and opportunities without enough volume of those that you can focus on the, the ones you're really good at. It's, it's almost an impossible task to, you know, yeah. say, I'm not going to take these other jobs and just focus on, on what I'm really good at to, to niche down and, and get excellent and invaluable for those things. Um, yeah. No easy answers. No easy nope. answers, but I appreciate the nope. conversation today. I appreciate uh, you sharing your story. What a fantastic, cool story of showing up as an early 20-something and eventually running the shop. Amazing. Just kind really, of a fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Allison, if people wanted to reach out to you to learn more about WinTech, how would you suggest they do that? Best ways to do on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So definitely find me, uh, reach out, connect, leave me a note, and I'm much more likely to hit accept if I know what you're all about. And we will make sure your profile is linked in the show notes um, and your website and all that. So thank you again. Um, Yeah, I know I'm definitely going to be promoting this to people that are in the defense space and want to hear some good candid advice and feedback and and sort of uh, state of the state of the union, if you will, of what's going on, because it's just there's so much out there that's confusing and people are overwhelmed and scared about uh, what it's going to cost me. And so appreciate you sharing today. It's daunting. Absolutely. All right, Alison. We'll see you around. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast. We hope you learned something that inspires you on your journey. You can find more episodes and information over on our website, machineshopmastery.com. There, you can also apply or nominate someone to be a guest on the show. We'll see you on the next episode. Until then, keep those spindles turning.